Well, we've been in a series on the end times, and uh, I've loved it. It's actually, it's not a topic that I preached on much at all, uh, for whatever reason. I'm sure not for good reasons. And so I have loved listening to these messages on the end times, and I've been stirred. I've learned some things, and I've been stirred, and I agree with Robert that we, I, we are in the end of the end times, and uh, that Jesus could very likely come in, I used to say, in my lifetime, but that was 20 years ago. Now that I'm 20 years older, I'm not quite as confident, but definitely in Robert's lifetime, I could, I don't, easily it could happen because things are lined up. The prophecies in Scripture that needed to be fulfilled are just, just being ticked off one by one, and it's so close. And what I want to talk about, though, is what I call the end after the end times, that after the end times of this earth as we know it, there's still way more to come. It's the real, the real big scene, and it's pictured for us in Revelation. We'll get to that in a minute, so tipped you off. Some of you already know where, where we are going to end up, but there's a story. I like to say that there's a story. It's God's story. It's the story that he's been writing. It's the story of history. It's the story of reality. It's his story, and it's the story that he had in mind, has always had in mind when he created this earth and the universe as we know it, and he created his most unique creation, which, by the way, is you, do you, you realize how unique you are, how special you are? There's no one like you of all of God's creation, humankind, you as a human, which you are. You are his unique creation. You are special, and you play a unique role in his story that God has a plan in mind that he's writing, and it's a story that will be written. What I, we're going to talk about that story today, God's story. Now, first of all, I'd like to give you, so I introduce a little bit of us, our background to where that, that, the discovery of that story landed in my heart. We had for decades a vision statement at New Hope, which is the name of the church that we pastored, which goes like this, spreading a passion for the glory of God from our homes to all. We almost said hearts, but we thought, no, it's a family thing. So from our homes to all peoples of the earth. I smile every time I think about that, that now I'm at a church that's called All Peoples. No exaggeration. If I would have thought about it, Robert, I would have had this name before you came along. I, I know I would have changed our name to All Peoples Church. And so that I'm now at a church that's called All Peoples Church, I absolutely love. Now, the, 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 that vision statement, spreading passion for the glory of God for homeless to all peoples, it's got two parts. The first part, spreading a passion for the glory of God is, is, is critical and it's key. It's a whole other message. But 20-some years ago, God just captivated my heart with the reality of the central. What I say, I like to say it, the centrality of the glory of God in the heart of God. That the highest affection in the heart of God is God. That's another whole message. What we're going to focus on today, Robert says yes, so, so I'll move away from that. From our homes, from our homes to all people's of the earth. Now, the, 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 the word peoples is not a word that is commonly used in our, in our culture, unless you go to all peoples church as, as we do, but it is used interchangeably, I think used interchangeably with two other words in scripture, specifically tribes and nations. 
And, and my, my story to get connected with that uh, began in 1997 when I went on my very first mission trip to Lithuania. Lithuania was a part of the, had been a part of the Soviet bloc, so we were there just a few years after that, after the wall had come down, when, the, when there was so much openness to the gospel, and a man named Dan Heitschus, and who's few around here would know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very prominent in the missions world, had been going to our church, and he had been a part of an organization that was bringing teams overseas, and so he basically said, Joe, we need to do this, so I finally agreed and began to tell my people, you need to go, you need to go, so people need to go, and they came back with these amazing stories, and finally I said, I guess, I guess if I'm saying you should go, I need to go, so I literally begrudgingly had no desire to go. We weren't really into missions except for the fact that we were a good Southern Baptist church, and we gave 10% of our tithes and offerings to mission. We just gave it off to this organization, and that was kind of it. So we really weren't a mission church, so I wasn't that interested in going. The very first day, I commiserated with this other mom the whole time how we would really rather be back home. And about the third day, as we began to engage with people, they'd heard about Jesus because there's a lot, there's a, a Catholicism in the Lithuanian history, but we were meeting with people who had never seen the gospel and really had never heard or had never seen a Bible, and had never really heard the gospel. And as I began to see these people, they came to our hotel. They just started showing up, and they were hungry. And my heart just began to melt. And God ravaged my heart. I mean, just ravaged my heart. And I began to cry. I mean, literally began for, for two weeks. For two weeks, I just, <clears throat> I just wept. Hon, give me my water, please. Right down there. For two weeks... There's one down there, too. Okay. I just wept. <clears throat> and, and just, I mean, God just totally got a hold of my heart. And, and still, it, as, as I even think about it, I, my heart is warmed. And, and I came back to the church. The people had heard that something had happened to Joe. And I came back, and the very first thing I said, I think, right away was, Folks were doing it all wrong, which isn't really true and not a good thing to say, but it's just how I felt, and we began to turn things around. I, I had really one of those experiences as a pastor where you go on a mission trip, and God so moves in your heart, you want to resign and go on the mission field, and that is exactly what I wanted to do, but God said, no, I want you to stay and, and pastor a mission-sending church. So that's what we begin to do. And in short order, we, we became this hub of all kinds of mission activity. Nearly every month, teams were going out on these short-term trips to places like Belize or Jordan or India or Bangladesh or Russia or Cuba or Lithuania. I mean, all over the world. Nearly every single month, their teams were going, and people were beginning to resign their marketplace jobs and go on the mission field. And it was, an, it was a, it's still, I think, back at the time, it was, it was just phenomenal, exciting time in the life of our in the life of our church, and just remarkable. A couple years later, we kind of out of the blue felt led. My wife, again, my wife, God spoke to my wife, and we went to, decided to go to this missions conference in Glorieta, New Mexico, which was a conference that we hadn't really ever given any thought to, but God said go, so we, we went. It was a missions conference, so we knew there was probably something that God had for us there. But the very first day, I was walking across the parking lot, and I heard this, vo this voice boom out, Joe Rhodes, I've been praying for you. And I looked around, looked up, and there was this guy who I'd gone to seminary with 20 years earlier. We, had, we were preloaders together at UPS, and we became really good friends, and he had gone on to become 
uh, on, to go on staff for the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Apparently, they had identified some churches that they wanted to connect with, and we were on his list. And so we reconnected and talked, and I asked him, so tell me about this conference route. I didn't know anything about it. What, would he, what seminars would he recommend that I go to? And he immediately said, the one you have to go to was taught by a gentleman named uh, Jeff Lewis on God's heart for the nations. So we signed up for that, went there the first day, and man, right away, that very first morning, as he began to unfold what the scripture said about God's heart for the nations, I absolutely was blown away. My chin hit the bar, hit the floor, and I was, I was just wide-eyed and blown away. As, God began, to re- as I, God began to reveal to me through that seminar something that after even four years of Bible college, three years of seminary, and two decades of preaching, I can honestly say I had never, ever heard. I still, I go, how did I, how did I not ever hear that? But it is, is the reality, it is the story, it is a th- and really what it, what it was, it was a theology. It was the heart and passion of God which was fueling our going. We were going, but what was underneath that and what's underneath that is a passion. It's the heart of God which is that the beauty and the wonder of the person and the work of Jesus was intended to go to all nations, to all peoples, to all tribes and that that from the very beginning is the story that God has been writing that's what he had all in mind he had an agenda he said I'm going to create the earth I'm going to create the world I'm going to put people in and we're headed somewhere and that's where we're headed and that's the story that God is writing now this story this concept this theology is all throughout scripture I'm going to give you just a few verses Okay, read John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. This is my echo of John Piper's Let the Nation Be Glad. He's had a huge impact on my life. I'm just going to give you a few verses where this concept is brought out. Genesis 18, 18. Since Abraham will surely become a great nation, became the nation of Israel, a mighty nation, and in him all the, na- all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It kind of starts there. And then you go to Psalm 86, 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before the Lord and shall glorify thy name. Psalm 96, 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among, say it with me, all the peoples. Psalm 96, 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among, say it again, all the peoples. Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all nations. Exult him, all peoples. Isaiah 63. I just just love this. All nations shall come to your light. Not might come, not we hope it comes, but all nations shall come to your light. And then finally, Isaiah 66.18, I am coming together all nations and tongues, and they shall come, and they shall see my glory. Over a hundred times in the Old Testament, this concept of all nations or all peoples or all tribes, that they are all going to come and see the glory of God is, is there. Now, it raises an important question that we need to catch, and again, around here, we, we know this, around this church, but frankly, most places that I've ever preached or talked about this, it, this, is, this is new. For many of you, this is not. Maybe for some, it will be. 
But it raises the question, what is meant in Scripture by the word nation or nations? It's the Greek, it's the Greek word, uh, all nations, is pantate ethne. Say that with me. Pantate ethne. You don't need to know much Greek, but that's one good to know. It's all the nations. In 1974, in Switzerland, in, in, uh, in Lausanne, Lausanne, Switzerland, a, a famous, world-famous, legendary missiologist named Ralph Winter at what was called the very first international conference on world evangelism. He turned the whole, whole missions world on its ear, or on its head. He turned it upside down when he brought forward the fact that the word nation or nations in Scripture does not mean the same thing as we mean it in our context. When we say nations, we think of geopolitical nations like Canada or the United States or, or Mexico. That's what we think of commonly when we think of nations. But in Scripture, nations refers to people groups, tribes, groups of people, people who have a common ethnicity, a common language, a common culture, a common way of living, a common way of dressing. They look alike, they think alike, they speak the same language. And if you go around the world, you really begin to see those distinctions even more so because they tend to gather together in regions together. We adopted a people group called the Metes around northeast India. We went there for years, and they had these beautiful people. And after we'd been there for several years, my wife went to Bangladesh, and she was told there were some Metes in Bangladesh. They had been transplanted there a 100 years earlier. So they've been 100 years away from their homeland and their majority people. And she says, well, I want to go visit them. And she goes to their compound, and it looks just like they do in India, though it had been 100 years since they've been there. They've been in a whole other culture. They look the same. They talk the same. They act the same. They dress the same. They live the same because that's what people groups do. And there are thousands of these people groups, in fact, in India. So it begins to change the way you look at the world. So, for example, India which we think of it as one nation, actually has thousands of nations, thousands of people groups, the Metes, the Nagas, the Santalis, the Banjaras, the Dobi, the Kohli, and on and on it goes. And around the world, these nations can be all sizes, small and large. There's the AK, the AK, the AK, however you say it, with only 200 of them. It's a people group in Papua New Guinea. Or there are the Chamar in India with 50 million of them. And so that's what nations are in Scripture. Now, there's another question to be raised. And how many, how many actually people groups are there? People start to ask that question. Well, then how many of these different people groups are there? If God's going to bring the gospel, if, if his glory is going to go to all of them, well, kind of want to know how many are there. Now, some actually say as many as 24,000. Depends on how you slice it up. The, what's called the Joshua Project which I'm sure some of you have heard about that. I'll say more about that in a moment. They say there are 16,594, give or take a few. The International Mission Board, actually, they break it down to 12,000. We don't really know for sure, but here's what we do know. God knows exactly how many there are. And whatever that number is, here's what we know. Whatever that number is, the beauty and the majesty of the glory of God and the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ will be revealed to every single one of them. Everyone will get to see, will get in on to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. Now, this theme continues in the New Testament. I'll just give you a few verses for that. Matthew 24, 14. It's kind of one of our favorite verses around here. I love being at a church where the pastor somehow brings it in. It seems like every week, somewhere, some way, and I love that. 
Matthew 24, 14 says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of, say it, all nations. Romans 1, 5, I love this verse. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for his name's sake. I did a series of messages on Romans and did four messages just on this one verse, which is way too many, but I was so caught up in all of it. Now, this really did. This whole thing of, of that, that God's plan is to bring the gospel to all nations begin to, to some extent, change the way that churches and mission organizations begin to approach a world evangelism such that the objective became not simply, although certainly, but not simply or only to get the gospel to as many individuals as possible. Let's do that. Let's get the gospel to every person that we can, but there now became this goal to get the gospel. Let's participate with God in getting the gospel to all peoples. Let's identify those tribes that are out there, and let's participate with God strategically to get the gospel to every single one of these 12,000 or 24,000 or whatever it is between. Now, how many of those thousands have we reached? How many are, I should say, how many are unreached? Because there still are hundreds of unreached. So, for example, I'm gonna, if you don't have this app, I encourage everybody to get this app. It's called the Joshua Project app. And every day they feature an unreached people group and today, let's check this out. Listen to this. The people group they feature are the Machi, or M-A-C-H-H-I, Machai, in Pakistan. Now, check this out. 2,487,000. 2,487,000. And as far as we know, there are no believers. I... I I, I can't even hardly fathom that. Yesterday, when I was sharing on last night, the people group were, I think they were Lahar, they were over two million, I think it was over two million, no believers. I mean, just let, let that, just think about that. It's been 2,000 years. That's a long time. 2,000 years. And still, there are whole massive people groups who, as far as we know, not one follower of Christ have not connected with the why they were even created. The good news is we've come a long ways, though. We've, we, we've come a long ways. And here's, here's the beauty of it. Well, first, let me say this. Here's the challenge of it is that there's this area in particular called the 1040 window. I know you've heard of, many of you heard about that. 1040 window is this part of the, United, of, the country, of the world between the 10 and 40 degrees longitude where most of the un, these unreached people groups exist. It's in the hardest to reach. It's where there are faiths that are very resistant to the gospel, places like North Africa and India and, and, uh, and, and parts of China, Middle East, and it's where they're very resistant. You, 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 can't, you just can't even go in there and share the gospel. And in many of those cases, in many of those cases, if you convert, you will be put to death. 
And so the, it's difficult. But here's the thing. No matter. But here, here's the beauty. Here's, here's, here's where God comes in. And, the, and by the way, the stories. I wish I had time to tell some of the stories. There's some amazing stories how God gets, gets the gospel there anyway. But here's, here's the beauty. Here's the wonder of God. No matter the obstacle, no matter the challenges, no matter what the resistance may be, no matter how difficult it may be to get there, no matter who wants to stand in the way, no matter what the cost of those who respond will be, God's story will be fulfilled. It absolutely will happen. A very good friend of mine named Bill Jackson has passed away several years ago, wrote a book, and he had a, he, he had a, he had a life message. It, it was one word. It was, he made it one word. Nothing's going to stop it. It's all about the story of God. You can Google it and see it. It's a beautiful story. He wrote a book. Because it's true, nothing is going to stop it. It will happen. The God, it will get there. Now, as far as how many are, are still left, we don't, we don't know for sure. Some say it's just, actually what we're saying now. In fact, Robert and some staff, I love this. I said to Robert after he came back, I'm so glad to be at a church that goes to the Finish the Task conference. Finish the Task. And there at that conference, every known unreached people group was adopted by some organization. It's like some group said, some church, some organization said, okay, we'll adopt them. We'll start focusing on getting the gospel to them. There's a man named Doug Cobb who started an organization called the Finishing Fund where he gathered money from wealthy businessmen and women to fund any organization that will, will seek to get the gospel to these unreached people groups to, to finish the task. It's the Finishing Fund. I was listening to a and he, he says there's maybe a few hundred left. Only a few hundred. And he said this, and this, this is mind-blowing. He said this. He said at the rate, he actually said this, and this is a no-nonsense guy. He's not just kind of speaking in hyperbole to get people excited. He says, he said, at the rate we're going, listen to what he said. Okay, this is 2020, right? We'll never forget 2020. He said this, at the rate we're going, by 20... 22, they'll all be reached. Let that just wash over you. By 2022, I don't, know if it, I don't care if it's early or late 22, that's just, that's around the corner. I mean, I know these we think these are hard times, and they are. I mean, this COVID stuff is a pain, and people are losing their job. It's, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's a tough time. I've never, we've never seen anything like it. Unemployment rate, all that. And I don't want to minimize that at all. And yet, man, we need to step back and, and, and tap into the story and say, we are living at the most amazing time in the history of the world. Maybe the only other time might have been as good or better, maybe would have been when Jesus was actually here. That would have been cool. Cool, that's minimizing it, but you know what I mean. But we are living at this most amazing time in history when we can be alive when that final people group is brought the gospel. And we can go one step further, and that is this. Not only will the gospel of Jesus get to them, but there will be some at least some who will respond and come to Christ and become a worshiper of Christ. They're not just going to hear it. They're going to say yes. We know that. Now we get to Revelation. 
Revelation 7, 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples. And so he says, and I don't want you to miss it. Like, okay, just in case you're wondering, and, and every tongue, spoken, unspoken. My daughter-in-law teaches sign language in high school, so I want everybody, speakers, non-speakers, every language, standing before the throne, and before the throne, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, I'm just looking at this. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to look at this. A great multitude which no one could count. So, I mean, you, I was at the Million Man March in, in D.C. back in the late night, in about the year 1999, where a million men came, D.C. Some of you weren't even alive then. And, and I remember just, I just walked around just as far as I could see, about a million of us. I can't even imagine what this is going to be like. And everyone will be saying with a loud voice, I mean, it's going to be a roar. Yeah. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And pictured here, so what we have a picture of is this glorious, amazing, heart-captivating, life-transforming truth and reality that God's plan, his goal, what he had in mind all along will be fulfilled. Every nation will be represented. And Jesus Christ, and here's the, here's the main thing, Jesus Christ, he will get the worship that he deserves. You see, the greatest tragedy, and, I, and listen to what I say here, and don't misunderstand me, the greatest tragedy isn't that people are lost without Christ. That's a great tragedy, of course. Can't minimize that. But the greatest tragedy isn't that people are lost without Christ, but it is that the true God, that Jesus Christ, is not getting the worship of which he is worthy. And so this is, this is why we do church planning. We, it's me, I'm here. This is why all peoples, we do church planning. That's why we're about church planning. I mean, there, there isn't anything that's more in line with what God's up to than that because God's primary vehicle to bring the gospel to the nations is the church. That's you and me. I mean, you can't have a mission statement that's any more in line with God's, the plan that God decided on when he created this whole thing is to get the gospel through church planning to all nations. And that's why we go is so that, not just to plant churches so that people can be saved, yes, that's it. It is so that this amazing God that we have the privilege of worshiping with this amazing worship team every single week, and we get to, to stand before his presence and enjoy him is so that, and give him the worship he deserves so that God can get the worship that he deserves from every nation. That's why we're doing this. That's the underlying motivation for what we, why we do what we do. John Piper says it this way, missions exist... Because worship doesn't, in some places, exist. So I want to go one step further, because now what I want to do, I, I focused on what, what I'll say God gets out of, he gets worship. But there's this wonderful thing that we get, how we connect with it, and what, what we get out of it, and then God gets more out of it. Here's what I mean. Psalm 1611 says this, You will make known, God, you, God, will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is and I love this word. Underline the word fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. In your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. And here's, here's what will happen. In that day when we are standing before God, 
we will experience from Jesus supreme joy and delight. Supreme, unhindered. See, right now, we, we sing songs like, God, I give everything to you. I, I want to worship you fully. We sing, you know, we sing those songs, but in reality, my heart is laced with other affections, other attractions, other distractions, and things that detract. And in my, my most spiritual moment, it's still, it's still way beyond what God deserves. It's still hardly even there. And my humanness is just not there. We were, we were uh, on a trip to India some years ago, and it was hot and humid, North India. We decided to take a day off. We had a bunch of college students. We decided to take a day off and take a trip up to to uh, Darjeeling, where they make tea if you're a tea drinker, Darjeeling. It's this windy road along this, this very narrow road, and it's a mountain, and there's all these cliffs, and there's no guardrails, this little narrow road. I, I turned to the, I, I asked our driver, have you done this before? He said, no, it's my first time. It was raining, and his defroster didn't work, so he's driving, and he's wiping his window while he's driving, and I say, Lord, please don't let us die, me with his college students, on our day off. If you want to have us die while we're cheering the gospel, but not on the day we're going sightseeing. <laughs> but it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. These hills, these waterfalls. And it, but some point during the day, I just was so tired. I sat down in my seat and shrunk back. And I'm saying to myself, why am I doing this? There's these beautiful, this beautiful scenery. But I was so tired, I just couldn't do it anymore. But there will come a day when I'll have a new body with a new set of eyes just it, it, power and authority in my heart, in my emotions, in my life, eyes to see with fullness the capacity of God, never get tired, never wane, where I can worship God and I can experience the fullness and the delight of God beyond anything, unending. And it's full. Any surfers out there, you love to surf, that ride, there we go, I see a few hands, same as last service, some few surfers, and that wave picks you up, and you're going down the face, and that thrill you get, that isn't anything compared to the delight and joy that you will have in the presence of Jesus, when in all of his full glory, he's shining in front of you. I love to fish. I spend, I mean, I'm going on a fishing trip in a couple of weeks, I think I told you about that, in a couple of weeks, my grandson's. And I'm going to spend hundreds of dollars to go catch a couple of, you know, some little 12-inch trout. But I love it, that thrill of the tap and the pull it in. But that isn't anything. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thrilled with it, be with my grandsons, and I love it. But that joy that I experience there isn't anything. It's a thimbleful compared to the joy and the delight that I will experience as I'm in God's presence and His face is shining. And I'll never get tired. It's, it's just let it go. And here's the thing, my delight, we worship God not mainly through words and expressions, the, the, the greatest expression of our worship is the delight that we have in our heart for Him. And that will be full in that day. Now, so how do we respond to this story, as I call it, God's story? How should we respond? I'm going to give you three Three things. See, the question isn't whether or not it would be fulfilled. It will. But how, what, how will we play a role in it? And God wants all of us to play a role. This isn't just for people going on the mission field, okay? Most of us won't ever go. So this isn't just for people who are going to end up overseas actually sharing the gospel. This story is for everybody to engage with. Whatever you may do, there's so many ways you can get engaged. This is the story God wrote that he wants you to be a part of, no matter what your 
role may be here in San Diego. So how can, how can I begin to engage this? Three things. Number one is ask God to give you, ask God to give you his heart. Ask God to give you his heart for the unreached. And I say that because it doesn't come natural. You gotta ask God, it's a supernatural work God has to do. And make it your constant prayer. Just say, I mean, every day, say, Lord, give me your heart for the nations. Just continually pray. Lord, give it to me. Lord, I want your heart. But there are three practical things you can do. Number one is get, get the Joshua Project app. And just every day, check it out. And you're just reminded of the fact there's a people, there's two million people who haven't heard the gospel yet. Second of all, read, I, this is just my practical thing I'm suggesting, but read missionary biographies. I'm reading for the fourth or fifth time the story of William Carey's story. The, 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 what's called, he's called the father of missions. I, I just finished that. Now I'm reading uh, uh, Lauren Cunningham's story, the founder of, of all of YWAM. I'm reading, I wanted to read that again because what I see all people's doing reminds me a lot of what YWAM has done. But read these stories, and I just say to you young people, and I love, God, call, God called us to all peoples because he said, I want you to invest in, in the millennials, in, in your generation. We love you guys. And he said, I want you to go and invest the rest of your life with the millennials in the Y generation or I generation. But here's the one thing I would say. You're awesome, but best I could tell, you don't read as much as you need to. Okay? Not because you're lazy, not because you're entitled. Just the ones I've come across. Do you read much? Nah, I don't really read much. And it's because there's so many distractions. So many distractions. But I just encourage you, start reading the biographies of the great missionaries. It's so inspiring. People like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, John Patton, these guys years ago, they, they have this calling to go and they get on a ship and it takes six months to get there. And they all, they, all of them don't even make it in some cases. And it's just so inspiring. I get on a plane and I'm complaining if I don't have an empty seat next to me and I complain about how bad airplane food is and, you know, just a little baby. And it's just, and I read these stories. And I don't, it's not a guilt thing for me. It's just a motivating thing for me. Read great missionary stories. And then go on a mission trip. Get, go, go get engaged. Go on our, I wish we could have done our Mexico mission trip this year. But get a chance. There's nothing, there isn't anything. I used to tell, I used to tell my people, I call them my people. Now you're my people, so I'll tell you. There isn't anything. There absolutely is not anything that is more fun or funner, as I like to say it. That's a notch above more fun. There isn't anything funner than getting to be the person who shares the gospel with a person who's never heard it. You get to be the first person. Now that, by the way, can be people here in San Diego because we got the nations coming here. There isn't anything like that. That'll stir your heart. That's what really turns so many of, of the people that I passed you before around. Number two is then, this is another kind of way to do this, but get engaged. Get engaged. Get engaged with God's heart for the unreached. A few ways to do that. To begin to Begin to either pray, go, or send. Just begin to pray for people. Find, find a people group to pray for. Get in touch. We have all these church planters. It, it, it really, my, my desire, my heart would be 
that everybody at all peoples is praying for one of our church planters. All of you. Everybody, just, you're holding the rope for him. You're praying for him. Pray or go. Be ready to go. What I love about all peoples is they have tracks where you can go. I mean, I was a part of an organization that to go in the mission field, you had to get a master's degree to go as a vocational missionary. Well, we don't have to jump through those hoops here. We can, we'll train you. We're ready to send you out. So be ready to go or send. And, and by that, I mean be ready to financially invest. And don't think it has to be a lot. It can be $10 a month. Don't think it has to, I don't have much. That's not even the point is you need to give for your sake, for what it does for your heart. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And we think that mainly means that, that where our heart is, that's what we'll give towards, which is true. But the reality also is that where you start to give, your heart will follow. You start to invest financially, even a little bit in some place. You start to care what takes place. And your heart expands and grows. Your affection for those places begin to grow. And so that can expand your heart. And then thirdly, and really most importantly is press into a greater vision of the beauty of Jesus. Press into a greater vision of the beauty of Jesus. And here's why this is so important. Your passion for the lost, for the nations, will not come mainly from a vision for the lost, but it will come mainly from an ever-increasing vision of the beauty of Jesus in your heart. Now, I don't know how much that resonates with you, but that is a reality that needs to resonate. When you were saved, you were given, the eyes of your heart are opened up, Ephesians 1. And now with those spiritual eyes, you have the capacity to gaze at spiritual things, to gaze, to see those things with the eyes of your heart, not just to know with your mind, but to see with your heart. You can learn about Jesus with your mind when you're not a Christian, but when you become a believer in Christ and you're spiritually born, you can now begin to see the beauty of Jesus with the eyes of your heart. And, and when you begin to see him with the eyes of your heart, it's absolutely amazing. But it is an ever-expanding thing that can take place. And, and there isn't... I, I still, I, I still I am blown away by this, that I can sit in my living room early in the morning while it's still dark and I'm having my FaceTime and, and the, with the eyes of the heart sight happens and I'm, and I'm thrilled and, and one time I just said to God I said God why, why? Just, it doesn't make sense humanly speaking why is that so thrilling for me and he said, because I'm giving you a glimpse of what is seen in full form, full vision on the throne. I'm, you're getting a glimpse. I call it beam, I like to call it beams of light from the throne are shining in my heart. And so you need to press into that. And, and, and that's where the heart, the vision, that's where the passion will come. Remember in John chapter 21 when Jesus came to Peter? Again, I'm on this. You've got to get a vision for the beauty of Christ. Your passion for Christ has to grow. When, John, when Peter came to John... Jesus, when Jesus came to Peter and he said to Peter, do you love me? And then Jesus said what? Feed my sheep. And he said to him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And then he said to Peter, then feed my sheep. A third time, Peter, do you love me? 
And he said, then feed my sheep. Notice, Jesus never said, do you love sheep? He said, do you love me? A, a pastor had a huge influence on my life, said that when he was a pastor, he used to really try and challenge his people to, to evangelize, to, to witness. And he said he did everything he could. He had training. He taught on it. He said, I would, he said, I would paint the fires of hell redder than they were. And they still wouldn't go. And he said, but one day a bunch of them fell in love with Jesus. And then they started to go. And so press into that. Three things you can do to do that. Pray continually. Once again, pray. Con- There's certain things I just, I'm always kind of praying. One is for the heart for the nations. The other is that Jesus would be revealed in my heart. I'm always saying, Lord, i got to see you. When I go to bed at night, Lord, let me see you. Let me see you while I'm, I, like, I say, Lord, let me see you while I'm sleeping. Lord, wake me up. I want to see you. The thing that I prayed for my congregation, my people at New Hope Consulates, Lord, they, I just said, Lord, they've got to see you. I pleaded, said, God, they've got to see you. They have to see you. And then second of all, not only pray that, but continue and participate in what we around here call FaceTime. And I love, I never heard that called it before. We called it quiet time. We called it your devotional life. 